Friends, I encourage you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 3. We'll be reading from verse 3 to verse 7. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to grab one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 998. As you find this passage, I want to remind you that, especially for those of you who are visiting us for the first time, we are currently going through the book of Titus, um, verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph. And this morning, we are in part two of a, of a three-part uh, mini-series uh, about our salvation, a close look at our salvation. Last week, we looked at the same passage, and next week, by God's grace, we will look at the same passage. As we uh, take a very slow motion uh, in understanding our salvation. Let's read God's word this morning that comes to us from the book of Titus, chapter 3. I'll be reading from verse 3 to verse 7. Here's the word of the Lord for us. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of His word for our hearts. Father, we need Your grace to assist us as we hear Your word. Would You give us Your Holy Spirit in abundant measures in this very moment, in this very place, so that we may hear you in a way that brings life to our souls, in a way that brings health and strength and faith. We pray that through the power and work of your Holy Spirit, the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted and glorified in us and in our midst this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Friends, the passage we have just read is a summary of the gospel. As one of the commentators mentioned, this passage is like, a, is like the, ga- the, the gospel in capsule form. I, uh, I encourage you uh, to consider memorizing these two sentences. Uh, if you want to understand and you want a, a sweet, short summary uh, of, the, of the truth of Christianity that we proclaim, These two sentences, verses 3 to 7, two sentences, uh, I submit to you as reasons and and worthy of uh, memorizing and uh, considering to encourage you to meditate on them. We've been taking, we're going to take three sermons to unpack these two sentences. Last week, we looked at the first three key elements about our salvation. We considered what we were like before coming to Christ. We considered how part of 
how, part of how Paul describes what we were like is seven descriptions. And you see these in verse 3 of our former way of life. The second truth we considered was the appearance of the goodness and loving kindness of God when He saved us. One of the primary ways that God describes uh, that God is described when He appeared to us to save us is that He appeared to us in His goodness and loving kindness. Even though we rebelled against Him, He appeared to us to rescue us. The third truth we considered last week is that we consider the basis of our salvation. On what basis does God save us? It's not on the basis of our actions. It's not on the basis of our merit. It's not even on the basis of our decisions. It is totally on the basis of His mercy. Well, today we continue to, to look at this salvation closely. And today we will consider two other truths about our salvation. And we're going through this in slow motion because it's important for us as believers to understand how, how is it that God applies his salvation to our hearts. And I pray that a part of, of us understanding the slow motion, understanding these truths, would encourage us to live differently in this world, to live in a godly way because of the way God applies and the way God works his salvation in our own hearts. So this morning we are looking at two more truths. We looked at three already last week. Today we're looking at two more truths about this salvation. And here's truth number one this morning. Consider how God saves us. Consider how God saves us. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? How does God save us? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, when we experience God's salvation, and we're talking here about our experience of God's salvation, we're not talking about what God has done in Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. We're talking about how is it that that salvation has reached to us, and how is it that that salvation has become ours today? What happens when that salvation is applied to us? That's what we are talking about today. Well, when we think about how God saved us and how God applied that salvation to us, there's two fronts. One is the part that we see. One is the part that we become aware of as human beings. It's the, the human responsibility, if you will. Uh, when we declare the news of what God has done in Christ to save us from the wrath of hell, we tell them about what He has done in Jesus 2,000 years ago. But we don't stop there. We tell them that that good news about Jesus, they must respond to it by repentance and trust in Christ for their salvation. When Jesus died on the cross, He took upon Himself the penalty of our sins, the penalty that our rebellion deserves. 
And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead to prove that indeed Jesus paid in full for our sins and for the sins of all those who would repent and believe in Jesus. So part of sharing the gospel is to let people know that unless they repent and believe in Jesus, this good news of God's salvation through Jesus is no good news for them. It will be only, good new, only news of their condemnation unless they repent and trust in Jesus. This is a human side of our conversion. We are called to repent and rely on Jesus for our salvation. Friend, let me just pause there for a second. If you're hearing this truth, if you're hearing these words, have never repented of your sins, I encourage you today, don't leave this place without asking God to save you. Call on the name of the Lord to save you. Repent of your sins and ask God to give you His salvation. And do that, my friend, even now, as we hear, as you hear these words. If you'd like to do that, if you'd like to know more about what that looks like, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Or I encourage you to talk to another Christian about what that looks like, what that means. But I encourage you to recognize and respond to this good news. Otherwise, this good news is no good news for you. Repentance and trusting Christ is the part of conversion that we are responsible for. We must act. We must respond. But conversion is not limited just to what we do. Our salvation involves not just our human responsibility. Our salvation involves not merely our own decision to repent and trust in Christ. There is another part of our salvation, of our experience of being saved. There is a hidden part that we can't see with our human eyes. And this part is carried out by God. God must act inside of us to save us. In other words, our salvation is not merely human decisions or a human decision to become a Christian. God operates an inner transformation inside of us, and this is what makes us Christians. Without that human, I'm sorry, without that divine transformation that happens inside our hearts, we're not yet Christians. So what exactly does God work in us when He saves us? Verse 5 gives us three pictures of what God does inside of us to create that inner transformation. We have the picture of washing. We have the picture of regeneration. We have the picture of renewal. Friends, these three pictures all describe one reality. They're not three different realities. They're three different pictures or three different experiences that really are tied together. They all happen together. There are three ways of talking about the one key reality of our inner transformation. Look at verse 5. What are the three, these three actions and how um, 
Paul describes this work of God's salvation inside our hearts. He saved us, not because of works done in us by righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We can push the pause buttons here and ask, okay, but how exactly did God save us? How? And the rest of the verse continues, by. That's an important word, by. By what? We might say, by the death of Jesus, and that would be true. But that's the, if you will, the objective experience of salvation, what God did 2,000 years ago. But how did that get applied to our hearts, to my heart, to your heart? It got applied in this way, by, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The first picture of what God does inside of us to save us is a picture of washing. Now, some people interpret this picture of washing as referring to baptism, and, but that is not the case, friends. It's not that baptism or some other kind of physical cleansing uh, creates a washing of, of our sin. Uh, the, this, the picture of washing is a picture that describes the inner cleansing that takes place inside our hearts when God saves us. Now, why is this picture of cleansing a picture of conversion? Sin, in the Bible, often is described as a stain. We don't often see ourselves stained because of sin. But God sees us stained because of sin. We might think we're clean. But in the eyes of God, our sin, our rebellious nature, and our acts of rebellion against Him, and our acts of ignorance against Him, make us stained, defiled before Him. There's a, a song that asks this question, What can wash my sin away? And the answer is, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because of our sin is described and is a defilement or a stain before God, conversion, therefore, is often described in the Bible through this picture of cleansing. Let me give you a few verses where conversion is described through this picture of cleansing. Ephesians 5.26, where Paul speaks about husbands loving their wives. Paul says to, to, to husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. God, through, the, through Christ, washes the church through the washing of water but it's not physical water. It's not even the, the water of baptism. It's the water with the Word. This picture of washing comes from the Old Testament promise that God gave when he, he spoke to His people about a new covenant. The promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, the passage that we read earlier in our, in our service. After the people of Israel have rebelled against God and after God has taking them into exile, and the people of Israel have profaned the name of God. God says to the people of Israel, People of Israel, I will bring you back, not for your sake. I will bring you back. I will restore you, not because of your goodness or for your goodness. I will restore you because I want to restore the holiness of my name among the nations. 
That's why I will bring you back. And when I will bring you back, here's what I will do. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. When Paul described the conversion of the Christians in Corinth, he first speaks about their former way of life, their sinful way of life. And here's how Paul does it in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says, um, or you, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. That's powerful. That's powerful. Paul refers to their former way of life. And says, this, this is how you used to be. And then he says, but you are washed. Do you see how he refers to conversion through this picture of washing? And it's God who executes this cleansing of our dirty hearts, of our filthy souls, of our idolatries and rebellious ways. Friends, when God saves us, he produces an inner transformation in our hearts. And the first picture we get of that inner transformation is the picture of cleansing, of washing. But this washing is unlike any other cleansing. It is a washing not with water. It is a washing of regeneration and renewal. The second picture that we get of what God does inside of us to create that inner transformation, the second picture is regeneration. The word regeneration in the, in the Greek language is made of two words that literally mean a new genesis. A new genesis. Others translate this word with a notion of rebirth or a new creation. This means that conversion to Christianity, dear friends, involves an inner transformation that is so radical that it is called either regeneration, a new genesis, or a rebirth. Now, why is this regeneration or rebirth needed? Because the Bible describes the state of our sin in another way, not only through being stained or defiled, our state of sinfulness is described also as a state of being spiritually dead, spiritually without life. So what is involved in our salvation what God must do to save us is that God must first awaken us, regenerate us. Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 5 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he goes on to describe that state of sinfulness. And then later God, uh, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you see how, 
how in, in the eyes of Paul, the Bible describes the picture of God saving us as an act of God making us alive. Our conversion this involves this act of God making us alive. He must bring us a new life in our inner being so that we can then respond to Christ whenever God's Word is proclaimed. Friends, whenever God's Word is proclaimed, He has the power to bring life to those who hear it, even though they're dead in their sins. To become a Christian is to experience this act of regeneration, this act by which God makes us alive in Christ. Without this act of God by which He makes us alive, we remain dead in our sins no matter how religious we become in our outward behavior. No matter what decisions, no matter what resolutions we make, without this act of God to bring us new life in Him, we remain dead in our sins, even though we might remain members of a church for the rest of our lives. God must regenerate our hearts if we're going to be saved. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, if we're going to be Christians in truth and not just in name, God must act this inside of us. The third picture that we get of conversion is a picture of renewal. Renewal. Some might think that this renewal refers to a later experience in the Christian life, the experience of sanctification that happens later as we grow into, into our maturity in Christ. Now certainly, there are passages in the Bible that speaks about our progressive sanctification as an ongoing renewal, and that's very true. But in our passage in this place here, the picture of renewal still describes the picture of conversion. In other words, it refers to that which is new in nature. It adds to the picture of rebirth, so that after the rebirth, there is a new birth, a new nature, a new disposition in our own beings so that we can now indeed start living a renewed life. The only reason why we can start living differently as Christians, the only reason we are commanded to live differently as Christians is because God has acted executed a renewing in our own hearts. The washing, the rebirth, creates this renewing inside of us. The cleansing of our inner beings has its root in this new birth and new uh, renewal. Friends, do you recognize that the new nature implanted in us by God turns us against our own old sinful nature? This old nature that we have inherited from birth or th and through birth is not eliminated at our conversion. It remains with us until either we die or until Christ comes back, whichever happens first. But after God saves us, we no longer owe anything to the old nature. The Christian is called to live daily by dying to the old self and instead live out the new nature that God has implanted in us. The reason why we can encourage one another 
to die daily, listen, to die daily to sin and the old nature is because of a true conversion that God acted in us in this radical act of regeneration, renewal, and washing. Friends, this means that becoming a Christian is not just a human decision. Let me just say that again. Because if we don't understand this truth, we will evangelize in a very distorted way. And we, we can do more damage to the cause of Christ than actually help. Conversion is not merely a human decision. It is also a divine act of God by which He regenerates, He renews, and He washes. All of that happens at the moment of conversion. And it is in light of that act that a sinner is enabled to understand the gospel, to be convicted by sin, and to be enabled to, re to repent and trust in Jesus for his salvation. I say this because today these manners have become distorted and confused. We, sadly, often in our evangelism, equate conversion with merely someone's decision for Christ. As long as we can get someone to make a decision for Jesus, we think that will make someone a Christian. Well, friends, that works in almost any other religion. But that does not work in Christianity. You can get someone to decide to become a follower of another religion just by just making that person decide to begin following another religion. And that will make that person a, a follower of that new religion. But in Christianity... Mere human decision does not make us Christians. Someone can make a profession of faith because of an emotional appeal. Someone can make an, a profession of faith because of external expectations of family and friends. Friends, I have personally seen a man sobbing after I preached to him the gospel in a Starbucks. Sobbing uncontrollably. And then have seen no other follow-up and no desire to do anything else afterwards. Nothing. Mere response that lasts just a day or two or a month or a year is no lasting transformation. It's no sign that God has actually regenerated the heart. We can, we can get people to raise up the hand we can get people to make a public profession of faith by promising them a bill of goods. That alone, their response to that will not make them Christians. Tears alone, emotional experiences alone, decisions alone to follow Jesus are not evidences of a changed heart. To become a Christian, God must actually operate on the heart. He must give us new hearts. He must cleanse through and through. He must create the radical change of our inner beings. And friends, when we get that, here's the beautiful part how it affects our evangelism. When we get that, we share the gospel. We talk to people about Jesus, about their sin, about their need to repent and believe in Jesus. We encourage them. We plead with them to repent and, plead in, 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 and trust in Jesus. But then we back off. And then we start praying. Lord, would you open their hearts? 
to, to bring them new life. Our confidence is in God to do that work. When this radical change takes place in our inner beings, it will become evident through changed affections toward God. It will become evident through changed affections towards His Word, towards the church, towards sin. And the new nature that God implants in us will produce lasting change in our lives. It will produce a yearning for God's holiness. It will result in submission to God's authority. It will result in a loving and joyful obedience to God's ways. Now let me be clear here. Does it mean that we will always be at the top peak of these experiences? No. There will be the ups and downs. But there will be over time a clear trajectory that we are growing in these experiences. I love how Jonathan Edwards summarized the biblical view of conversion. He said, conversion is a great and universal change of the man, turning him from sin to God. A man can be restrained from sin before he is converted. Listen to that. A man can be restrained from sin before he is converted. But when he is converted, his very heart and nature is turned from it unto holiness, so that henceforth he becomes a holy person and an enemy to sin. What this means for us is that, friends, when we declare the truth about Jesus, and when we see someone respond to Christ, we must also warn them and give them this heads up that a mere decision alone will not make them Christians. That God must actually act this change of hearts. And when that change of hearts happens, the effects of that change are eternally lasting. They will persevere to the end. With no perseverance to the end, there is no evidence that the change of heart has truly happened. It may have been just an, an appeal through the mouth. It may have just, just a, a response to the emotion. I have often given... When I evangelize and see someone respond to Christ, I have often given them this particular caveat for them to recognize that God must act to save them, as well as they must respond to repent and trust in Christ. This is how God saves us. This is how God applies His salvation to us. Well, friends, who exactly works this in our hearts? Who works the... The, the regeneration? Who works the re renewal? Who works the cleansing? The second point that I'd like for us to look at this morning, consider who applies God's salvation to us. Consider who applies God's salvation to us. We've considered how God saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal. And now let's consider who applies these to our hearts. The answer is, look at verse 5. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. He is the one who acts the cleansing. He is the one who acts the regeneration. He is the one who acts the renewal. Look at verse 5 again. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of who? Of us? Our renewal? My renewal? My decision to renew me? Oh no, dear friends. It's the renewal that the Holy Spirit 
works in us. We saw this connection between the act of cleansing and the Holy Spirit in Ezekiel 36, where God promised to cleanse the hearts of His people from their idolatries. And that promise is related to the promise of giving the Holy Spirit. Let me read those verses again. I will sprinkle, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you instead a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Oh, friends, do you see how the coming of the Holy Spirit inside our hearts will cause us to walk in God's commands and to obey His rules? Why? Because God, through His Spirit, affects this change of heart. Likewise, Jesus spoke in the same language, the same categories when He spoke to Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. In other words, it's the Spirit of God who enables us to experience a new spiritual rebirth. Romans 8 Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Did you hear that? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to God. In other words, being a Christian means that the Holy Spirit of God is inside of us. He doesn't just visit us. He dwells in us. He is a part of us. And He doesn't just sit there. He brings a new birth of our new nature so that we now have new dispositions to live by the Spirit. Friends, how do you know if a person has the Holy Spirit inside of them? How do you know if the Holy Spirit is inside a person? Some Christians might respond that you must look at the spiritual gifts. Friends, the biblical answer, how do we know that the Holy Spirit is inside a person? is that the first thing the Holy Spirit does is to regenerate that person. Convict that person of sin. Imbue them with faith to trust in Christ so they repent and believe in Jesus. And then, there is a holy disposition in that person to start living daily in God's ways. To honor God. To seek the glory of God. Daily putting to death our sinful desires, and seeking instead to live a life that pleases our Lord. Friends, you can know that the Holy Spirit is inside a person when you see 
a genuine desire for holiness in that person. Now, how do we get the Spirit? Verse 6 tells us, which He, God, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In other words, God pours out the Holy Spirit on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here, friends, we have a Trinitarian description of how each of the three members, three persons of our triune God, are involved in our redemption, in our salvation. All three members of our triune God are involved in the conversion of just even one sinner. All three members of the Trinity act in this way. God the Father is the one who plans our salvation and ensures that our salvation will be carried out. Jesus, God the Son, is the one uh, who executes our salvation by the fact that He died um, paying the price of our purchase. And He appeased the wrath of God so that God can indeed save us and adopt us and bring us to Himself. But it is God the Holy Spirit who applies the benefits that Jesus has purchased for us. It is God the Holy Spirit who takes those benefits and applies them to our hearts. God sent His Spirit through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Friends, this means that the Holy Spirit is poured out in, uh, on us in connection with our salvation. The Holy Spirit applies to our hearts what Jesus accomplished for us. That's why, dear friends, the life of a Christian is a life of the Spirit of God living in the Christian. You can't be a Christian without the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit living in you. There's no salvation without that Holy Spirit living inside of us. There's no salvation without, that Holy, without the Holy Spirit working regeneration, renewal, and the cleansing of our hearts. Christians are spiritual people because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, dwelling in us. That's why Paul commands the Christians in Galatia. He says to them, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Then he goes on to say, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Now, friends, just think about those. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But... But the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit, well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Friends, for Paul, the Christian life is a life in the Spirit. You can't live the Christian life any other way. Do you see, my dear friends, how for the Apostle Paul, the life of the Christian 
is so tied up with the experience of the Holy Spirit inside of us. But let me ask you, is there evidence that the Holy Spirit of God has made you a new person? One of the reasons why we don't act quickly or immediately in baptizing people immediately is because we want to see some sense of evidence of regeneration. Some sense of evidence in a person's life that the heart, not just the behavior, but the heart has been transformed. But notice when the Holy Spirit of God, when He pours the Holy Spirit on us in, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, He does it not just in, a, in, in the little drops. He does it richly. He poured out the Holy Spirit richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh, friends, I pray that we would recognize the work of the Spirit as the agent who applies God's salvation to our own hearts. Let me go back to Jonathan Edwards. His own testimony. He grew up in a, in a Christian home. has been raised up by godly parents. Taught the Word of God from very early on. Here's how he describes even some of his own experiences of religion as, growing up as a child. My mind, he says, my mind was much engaged in religion and had much self-righteous pleasure. And it was my delight to abound in religious duties. I, with some schoolmates, joined together and built a booth in a swamp in a very retired spot for a place of prayer. And besides, I had particular secret places of my own in the woods where I used to retire by myself and was from time to time much affected. My affections seemed to be lively and easily moved, and I seem to be in my element when I engage in religious duties, and I am ready to think many are deceived with such affections and such kind of delight as I then had in religion and mistake it for grace. But in the progress of time, my convictions and affections wore off, and I entirely lost all those affections and delights and left off secret prayer at least as to any constant preference of it, and returned like a dog to his vomit and went on in my ways of sin. He went on in his diary. Much later, he experienced for the first time the beauty of the glory of God. He said, the first instance that I remember of that sort of inward, sweet delight in God and divine things that I had lived much in since, was on reading those words. And here is the verse that effected, if you will, that the Holy Spirit of God worked to effect regeneration in Jonathan uh, Edwards' life. It comes from 1 Timothy 1.17. When he read these words, his heart was changed. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He goes on and says, as I read these words, there came into my soul a sense of the glory of the divine being, a sense quite different from anything I've ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. From about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehensions and ideas of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation 
by him, and my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ in the beauty of his person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. It is possible, my dear friends, it is possible that we can engage or decide to begin acting religious duties, religious commitments, and yet our hearts not to be regenerated. There is nothing more dangerous for the spread of the gospel today than for Christians to be confused about what is involved in our salvation. Yes, Jesus died for us. But friends, even unregenerated people can accept that, yet they would not rely on Christ alone for their salvation, nor will they repent entirely. Merely acknowledgement or acceptance of biblical truth does not mean that our hearts have been transformed by the Spirit of God, regenerated, renewed, and cleansed. So we consider two truths today about how God saved us. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And the one who executed the salvation in our hearts, it's the Holy Spirit whom God has poured on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. May we be clear about that salvation. Would you pray with me? Oh, holy God, we praise you that you made plans to apply the benefits that Christ has purchased for us, apply them to our hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit. And it is you, O oh God, who renews us. It is you who changes us. It is you who gives us new life, new dispositions. We pray that you would do more of that in those who are still without Christ. For the glory of your holy name among the nations. Amen.